Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. One of the perks of my job is that I get to hang out with people who, like me, appreciate a really good story, especially those where food is involved. Now, the Proof Gang will often bandy about some ideas for episodes, we'll review pitches from reporters, and we'll chat about food news. And we'll tumble down many, many culinary rabbit holes. But mostly, we like to talk about stories that we've heard about. At one recent meeting, executive producer Caitlin Kelleher told us about a story that she'd read from Eater's Life and Chain series that was called Sizzler and the Search for the American Dream. The author of the piece, Cecilia Hagen Lee, recounted the experience of her family's immigration to the United States and their life thereafter. And she captured in words how food imparted all sorts of feelings during this time. There was fear, uncertainty, excitement, hope, comfort. So today, we've asked Cecilia to share her experience with us. The story has been adapted a little bit, and you're going to hear from her siblings too. So, settle in and enjoy this one. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Hey, Proof listeners, it's Bridget, and I want to tell you about something I think you're going to love. It's NakedWines.com. They bring delicious, affordable wines straight from independent winemakers directly to your home. Unlike the big wine retailers, NakedWines.com is a customer-funded wine business. With the help of the more than 100,000-member Angel community, NakedWines.com supports independent winemakers to make their passion projects. And you can become an Angel, too, with a monthly membership so you can support independent winemakers and get access to delicious, exclusive wines in return. Go to nakedwines.com slash proof for $50 off your first order. My name is Cecilia Hagen Lee, and these are my siblings, my sister and my brother. My name is Catherine Heran Lee. I'm Sang Lee. It's been over 40 years since we moved to America, but we've never really talked about it. The three of us are still close, but we're not very nostalgic people. We don't sit around reminiscing about things. We get together for birthdays, holidays, baking, or whatever. Come to think of it, all of our family gatherings revolve around food. Turns out, so do our memories. I was too young to remember. You don't remember any of it? No. Seriously? My brother Sang was just four years old, so he doesn't remember any of it. His memories are locked in an old language he barely speaks anymore. I was a few days shy of seven, and my sister Heyran was eight. I think she remembers the most. Just a little warning, my sister Heyran and I have very similar voices. We sound nearly identical on the phone, so much so that one time I asked a guy out to a school dance on her behalf while she and her best friend listened in on our speakerphone. But that's another story. I think you'll know it's me because I'm the more sarcastic one. Sangd, what is your first memory in America? I don't know. I was too young. You were so young. But you've got to remember something. 
Our family immigrated to the United States in the late 1970s. We left behind our friends, our family, our language, our customs, and everything we knew. We squeezed everything that was important to us into two giant 70-kilo bags per person and still managed to have room to wedge in our hopes and dreams. I remember being at the airport, and we had those big, giant suitcases, and then they said mom had to take out... It was too heavy. They had to take out something. So she had to give up all her china. She had packed up all her dishes. And then she had one cup that, that one somehow cup. it was packed somewhere else. And so she took out all the dishes except that one cup. And it was at the airport. So she had to just give it up. And I, I remember her being sad about it. Yeah, Losing all her, her set of dishes was like a big thing for mom. So traumatic. So her. she really, really missed that. <laughs> I think it was, that was, hard. I don't know why, but it was the dishes. It was really hard for mom to give up. So I remember that. On the day we left, I wore a bright red blazer that my mom had bought me especially for our trip. My brother and sister had new coats too, but I was particularly happy about mine, with these three shiny brass buttons that I would polish with my fingers until I could see my reflection. On my left pocket, I had the going-away gifts my best friend had given me, a small notebook shaped like an elephant and a pencil. There were 10 of us leaving Korea, me, my parents, my two siblings, uncle number seven, my aunt, and their three children. We walked through the metal detectors at the airport, and I set off the alarm. The uniformed ladies looked at me, puzzled. I was worried that I'd done something wrong. They asked me what was in my pockets, and I produced a handful of candy, keeping my elephant-shaped notebook and pencil out of view in case they wanted to confiscate them. Everyone laughed and let me pass. We had been preparing for the trip for months, maybe years, Time is fuzzy when you're that young and the days roll into weeks. But somehow, the preparations ended and the day itself had come. I don't remember when the important announcement was made that we were leaving, but I'm sure it must have been at dinner. Dinner was when my dad made all his important declarations. A decision was made by the adults, and then at dinner, the children were informed. It was a benevolent dictatorship. When we were told that we were moving to America, my siblings and I were excited and confused. We were full of questions, but we were so young. We didn't know which questions to ask. I remember not knowing what to expect. Like, I don't know what this America is, you know? Yeah, exactly. We're like, we're moving, but we don't understand what that means. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, I wouldn't, I didn't know that when we move and that's it. <laughs> we're going to be gone. Like, you know, we're like moving far away because I don't, I had no sense of, where it is, how far it is. and Yeah, we didn't know what it was yeah. at all. Yeah. Just knew that we had to pack everything up and move. My dad dreamed of steak dinners every night. Beef was expensive. It epitomized luxury. But he figured that steak dinners would be achievable in America, the land of plenty. My mom dreamed of laced oilies and matching china. Her notion of America was shaped by Hollywood movies. We children dreamed of nothing. We had no idea what to expect. It was not long after the announcement that we were moving to America that the bed appeared. None of us had ever slept in a bed before, so my parents bought one so that we could practice sleeping like Americans. We took turns each night from eldest to youngest. My father went first, my mother next, my sister third, me next, and my little brother last. The bed experiment didn't go so well for me. I was the most active sleeper. I tossed and turned and spun. Sometimes I would wake up in the middle of the night and find myself upside down, my head where my feet had been, but it had never been a problem when we slept on the floor. Sleeping in the bed, I fell off with a thud. 
The next morning, my mom found me safe and warm between my siblings on the floor on top of the usual thick blankets. She didn't ask me to sleep on the bed again. It didn't matter, we reasoned, because we would be too poor to buy a bed when we moved to America anyway. We also had to practice eating American food. My mom knew somebody who knew somebody else who was married to an American GI station in Korea. This friend lived on the army base and had access to the military commissary. It was from her that my mom got a hold of our first taste of America, a giant rectangular brick that she brought home and placed in the middle of our refrigerator. I opened the fridge and stood there looking at the brick for a long time. My siblings came over and looked at it with me. It was wrapped in brown paper, four inches square on one end and half a foot long. My brother wondered what it was, but my sister and I didn't know how to answer him. My sister closed the door. I opened the door again and looked at it. When her mom came home, we asked her what it was. She said it was cheese and unwrapped it from its brown paper packaging. Inside the paper was another brick, bright yellow-orange and vacuum-sealed in plastic. We had never seen food that color before. We had never eaten anything that perfectly geometric. It sat in our fridge for days, like an unwelcome guest that never said anything. It just sat there without a word of explanation. We had staring contests every day. The cheese always won. I always had to blink. Eventually, my mom took it out and cut it up. She gave us little pieces. My siblings and I were not picky eaters. My father would not have picky children. He would give us a bite of food and not tell us what it was until we were done eating. Then he would tell us that we had finished eating beef tongue or pig intestine or the tiny right wing of a sparrow or a sea snail or something without a name that tasted like the bottom of the ocean. And so without any complaint, we ate the cheese. It had a strange texture and smelled funny, but if this was what Americans ate, we were going to eat it because we were going to be Americans. But no one showed us how. First, my mom cut the cheese into little cubes and put it in our rice and melted and turned our rice yellow-orange. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't good either. We tried it in fried rice, we wrapped it in kimchi, we put it in our kimbap, and tried it every other which way we could. I remember the cheese. It was like a, <laughs> um, it was like a really kind of foreign thing because mm-hmm. we never ate cheese in Korea, never. And then it was kind of considered something like exotic, special, you know, because nobody ate cheese. On a cold November morning, we boarded a 747 bound for Philadelphia by way of Hawaii. The plane was a double-decker beauty. The first-class passengers were on the second floor with the rest of us beneath them. After a brief nap, I left my seat to explore the plane on my own. I remember a spiral staircase that led up to a circular opening on the top level, where there was a bar full of American adults smoking and drinking. They said something to me in English, but I couldn't understand them. Then they laughed, which was worse. They were probably telling me I shouldn't be there and I should go back down. I ran back to the safety of my family. At one point, the stewardesses brought us little cups of juice and bananas, carried on little carts wheeled down the middle of the plane. Because on the airplane, they gave us a banana, and I saved it because, oh, this is precious. And a whole I put banana it in the, for yourself. <laughs> in Korea, bananas are hard to come by. They were a luxury. We were in Korea, banana was this like special treat. And mom, so mom would buy us one banana and cut it into thirds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'd have to share one So you banana. were so young, you don't remember that It cost that a thing. dollar for like one banana. And this was in the 70s, so it was really expensive. I think expensive. maybe even more. Mom would buy us a banana if we because we had to get all these shots to get immunized to come to America. Yeah. And if we didn't cry when we got our yeah. shots, we yeah. would she would buy us with one banana, but then we'd have to share it. So she'd get we'd get a banana and we'd have to cut it in Yeah, thirds. I remember that very clearly. 
Having to share a banana with my siblings was part of my old life. Now I was flying to America on a double-decker plane towards a life where they just handed you free bananas. A whole banana for myself, and then I forgot about it, and then it got bad. Oh. And I remember, oh, I wasted a banana. I remember feeling <laughs> really funny. bad about that. <laughs> That's yeah, very funny. We never got to eat a whole banana until we came to America. Stay tuned after the break. Many people are stuck at home, including us at America's Test Kitchen. Welcome to America's Test Kitchen at home. It's a good day today. Just gonna put this in our food processor and buzz it for five to seven pulses until it's coarsely chopped. <laughs> I'm gonna plug it in too, that's always good. And again, things may catch on fire. It happens. The power went out, we broke some dishes, and the lights are flickering. Which means a lot of us are spending more time in our kitchens. Upgrade your kitchen with Kohler's new Crew Touchless Kitchen Faucet. It turns on with a simple wave of your hand. Its innovative and discreet technology activates the faucet instantly and reliably. It's clean, sophisticated, and most importantly, hygienic. If you're cooking at home more than ever, you might as well enjoy it. Learn more at Kohler.com. For 30 years, OXO has made thoughtfully designed kitchen tools to make every day better. And senior product manager Jamie Levy says the new OXO Brew 8-cup coffee maker can make your coffee better, too. We take so much pride in the work we do here, the thought we put into our products, the products we put on the market. The feature that is designed to allow you to brew into a mug is really a great feature. It's nice to be able to brew directly into your mug and you don't have to like hack the machine to be able to make that work. It actually was designed to allow that. Brew a cup right into your cup with a single serve setting on OXO Brew's new eight cup coffee maker. Shop OXO Brew products at oxo.com slash brew. That's oxo.com slash brew. OXO, better guaranteed. Hi, Proof listeners. The holiday season is here, and that means it's cranberry season. Today, I'm calling my America's Test Kitchen colleague, Brian Roof, to find out how he plans to use cranberries this year. Hey, Brian. Hey, Bridget. How's it going? <laughs> Good. So, Brian, what's on your cranberry lineup this year? This year for cranberries, I'm doing a cranberry orange olive oil cake. Ooh, that sounds good. It's a delicious, tender cake, sweet buttercream, and kind of a sweet, tart cranberry curd. You get a nice tartness, but there's sugar and there's orange in there to balance it out. It's something about it really sings against the buttercream. Bring together ingredients that make your ocean spray cranberries sing. For more information and recipes, visit Oceanspray.com. Now, back to our story. The months we lived in Reading, Pennsylvania, we never went out to eat once, except for the time my mom went out with our neighbor to have her first ice cream cone. We went to school, played in the snow with our cousins, and went shopping at Sears. The first time we went to Sears, my mom stood in front of the mugs and started crying. She had thought that America would be full of porcelain flower cups and dainty saucers, but all they had at Sears were ugly, clunky mugs. One small coffee cup from my mom's extensive collection had somehow stuck into our luggage. For her, it was a reminder of everything she had to leave behind. Her friends, the familiar landscape, all her beautiful things. So that we could pursue the American dream. A dream of drinking out of ugly mugs. 
Yeah, but later we found yeah. out like she had a lot of anxiety for years. She would get like panic attacks, and, and she like never that. wanted to be alone. And we it. didn't know what they were at that time. Alone, we were, yeah. You know, she we didn't, didn't want to be alone at night in the yeah. house by herself. So. And she would get panic. She said, "I can't breathe," and you know, yeah. I feel like claustrophobic. She and is late, claustrophobic. Yeah. Actually. Later, yeah. though, we realized those are actually panic attacks, anxiety, but we didn't know that at the time. But it, she'd ha- experienced that for years. Yeah, we didn't yeah. know. Yeah, we had no idea. And I don't think she had those panic attacks in Korea. She was, it wasn't like that to that extent. When we lived in Seoul, my father was an airplane mechanic for Korean Airlines. He was the president of the labor union. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. We had a live-in nanny who took care of us and even slept with us. My mom was the president of my kindergarten class. She took embroidery lessons, played cards, and had afternoon coffee with friends. We had a lovely middle-class existence. What we didn't know as children was that the 70s was a turbulent time in Korean history. The year after we left, Korea's president was assassinated by his own men. What my parents didn't know was how difficult it was going to be in a new country. Reading didn't look like the American dream shining from movie screens and glossy magazines. And leaving Korea behind was harder than they could have imagined. I remember, well, and then mom's, mom's dad, dad died, died, died in January. Like, yep. Right after we moved. Yep. And she all yep. she remembers is having a big fight with him at the airport before we moved to America. And I remember her like getting a phone call from Korea. Yeah, me too. And she f- collapsed on the, mm-hmm. holding the phone with a really long cord in the kitchen floor. And she was crying. And we didn't know we were crying, but all three of us hugging mom, just crying on the kitchen floor. I remember yep. that. That was terrible. And that was because our grandpa died. And she couldn't go back to Korea because it was to too expensive. Yeah. So she couldn't go back to, you know, to the funeral or anything. And it was horrible. That was bad. Yeah. And then, of course, it was hard because they don't speak English. They yeah. brought their three, you know, kids and they're trying to figure everything out. Despite our move to America, the steak dinners my father had dreamed of remained distant. There were no jobs for a bunch of Koreans fresh off the plane. My parents tried for eight months, but Reading was not kind. Each member of our family bore our difficult transitions in our own way. My parents never knew that I got bullied in school every day, and I didn't have enough English to fight back, and I was too young to really understand my parents' struggles. I think it was hard for both of them because they couldn't find jobs when we first came, and we were, when we were in Pennsylvania. They thought we could, they could have a better life and that they could give us a better life, and we'd have more opportunities. Yeah. That's why um, they came, but then... I think when they came, economically, it wasn't better for them. It was actually worse because yeah. they had to work so hard. He had a better job in Korea. And then here, he had to learn all over again. I and know. then he mom was like, wasn't working in Korea. And then when we came here, she had to work. I know. So, you know, it was hard. They had to work hard. Yeah. To All to give us a better life and more yeah. opportunity. So we moved to Los Angeles, to Koreatown in pursuit of work and that elusive dream of steak dinners. My dad got a job as an auto mechanic. He had never fixed a car before, but it couldn't be harder than fixing an airplane. My mom got a job doing piecework at a sweatshop downtown. We made friends. Our five-person family moved out of our one-bedroom apartment into one with two bedrooms. We were poor, but my parents worked hard to make sure we never went hungry. But I remember we just ate a lot. It was all Korean food. Yeah. Because that's what mom would cook for us. Never American food. Yeah, I think American food, initially, it was kind of like, ooh, it's special and exotic, something different. Some of them was weird, yeah, because we were not used to it. 
Some of it was like strange, and you know, we, we grew up eating Korean food. We don't know anything about American food, and we thought these, you know, the frozen meals were this special thing. I remember like when we hungry were man. able to buy it. Yeah, hungry yeah. man dinners, frozen dinners. Salisbury when steak. When mom and dad would let us buy it, that was such a special thing. <laughs> and then we, and then we like it would take like forever to cook it, and then we put it in the oven. It would take yeah. like thirty five minutes. And then every yeah. single time, because it was before microwave. Oh yeah, yes, it was in a pre microwave. You have to cook it in the oven. Yeah. And it would take thirty-five. Yeah. I remember thirty-five minutes because yeah. I would sit there waiting. Yeah. And then you take out the little aluminum tray, and then you'd eat the Salisbury steak with the mashed potato and whatever green beans, and then like the little cranberry in the middle. No matter how long you waited, you always burned your mouth. Little by little, my siblings and I settled into our new life. We began assimilating into American culture. Learning English, trying to understand the latest fashions, trying to make sense of disco. And my parents tried to help. Mom had heard that we have to see this movie called Star Wars. <laughs> so there was a still a line around the block at the Chinese theater. And we stood in line and she dropped us off because she couldn't afford to buy herself a ticket. And we got there and we were sitting in the front row. Yeah, I remember. There were no seats available. And it just I remember like my neck craning and the... You know how the in the world or whatever, like the words that yeah, go, yeah, yeah, and it was yeah. so close, and we couldn't read it. We couldn't, <laughs> you know, we couldn't even read it. We didn't know what was going on, and you fell asleep. That's what you Sang, remember. You were sad. You fell asleep. Sang slept everywhere, little. so you know. Sang fell asleep because it was boring. Yeah. Whatever. And then mom came in yeah. and brought us Chinese food because she to convince the ticket dude that like her three children were starving inside and they were in the movie, and somehow she came in. And and we were able to get we food. Were, <laughs> we were <even> Do you remember this? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, Sang was sleeping most of the time. <laughs> we ate Chinese food while watching Star Wars. Yep, at the Chinese. The you remember that, right? Like I didn't make this up. Mom, <laughs> mom, you know, mom always does those things. I don't even know how she came in and brought the Chinese. Oh, because she's very convincing. She is very she, convincing. Even she, she doesn't speak anybody. English, but she's gonna convince somebody. Yeah. Like yeah. her three children are dying inside of starvation. But I remember because that was our first uh, movie we saw at American theater. Understanding American culture was important to my mom. I remember finding a dog-eared copy of a book in Korean titled something like How to Raise Your Children the American Way on my mom's dresser. Maybe that's where she got the idea to start paying us to do chores. To be honest, she worked a lot and didn't have much time to raise us. But the Americanism seeped in, little by little, like her lunchtime specialty. Mom used to make us peanut butter and banana sandwiches. Oh, I hated that. She wouldn't pack lunch in the morning. Yeah. So then she would rush to us at lunchtime. We were outside in the yard. Yeah, she would meet us in the gate. She would just stop by at lunchtime. And then <laughs> I, I would open it and I said, Oh no, peanut butter and banana again? <laughs> I hate peanut butter and banana. <laughs> I don't even like peanut butter in the first place. And then with banana, it's even worse. <laughs> but mom packed it because she thought it was healthy. You know, it is. No, she would, it was good. She would say Elvis Presley's favorite. It was Elvis Presley's favorite. We're like, we don't care that it's Elvis's favorite. We don't like it. Years later, we were finally able to have our fancy steak dinner. And that meal was at Sizzler. Sizzler is serving all-you-can-eat golden fried shrimp. I can't remember the particular occasion, but it must have been somebody's birthday or some kind of special occasion. All those commercials of flame-grilled steaks and shining vegetables were about to become a reality. I could hear the female voice in the background seductively saying, Sizzler. When we walked into the restaurant, I watched the other diners to see how to use a fork and a knife. I was 12 years old, but I had never used one before. We had used only spoons and chopsticks our entire lives. We had one singular fork in our house, which made its way from drawer to drawer, never quite finding a home in any of them. To us, Sizzler was the epitome of the American meal. 
We could have big steaks, the likes of which were expensive in Korea, reserved only for special occasions. There were nice cloth napkins you put on your lap. The waitresses were friendly and would refill your drinks for you. The drink glasses were enormous. At restaurants in Korea, we had to refill our own drinks and serve our own tea from a pitcher on the counter. We had to yell to get the waitress to come to our table. The American waitresses came by on their own and brought us complimentary slices of cheese toast, warm and crisp, salty and buttered, with just the right amount of soft white bread in the middle. I used to love the cheese toast. Yeah, I remember that was like, it was favorite. like a special thing to go to Sizzler. That was our fancy night out. Yes, yes. yes. The cheese toast, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the cheese toast is still good, yeah, I have to tell you. And of course, there was the salad bar. Like the steak, it was also the American dream epitomized in all its shiny brass and glass glory. It was all you can eat. You could never go hungry in America. All the vegetables, fruit, and lettuce you could ever possibly eat were here. I walked around the entire salad bar before taking anything. My eyes wide with anticipation, watching the other diners to see what they got. And there it was, sitting in a bowl like an old friend. The cheese. Little, square, yellow-orange blocks. So this is how you ate the little blocks of cheese in America. On the salad you got from the limitless salad bar at Sizzler. After five years in America, we had finally arrived. It was always a special occasion when we went to Sizzler. We didn't have to share anything, we could eat as much as we wanted, and we never fought. My dad always got some kind of steak with a baked potato. My parents always got Thousand Island dressing on their limitless salad. When we got older, my siblings and I would take our parents to real steakhouses. Nice ones. When a waitress would ask what kind of dressing they wanted, they always wanted Thousand Island. They always wanted Thousand Island dressing. They still do. That was a special dressing, Thousand Island dressing. They still, well, every time we take them out, they're like, what kind of dressing do you want? I know. Thousand Island. I'm like, Mom. <laughs> oh, my God. And I'll be like, Mom, it's the Thousand Island is not fancy. And Mom, there are better dressings. You should try some other dressing. <laughs> and she goes, no, I want Thousand Island dressing. <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, this isn't as good as Sizzler. They don't so have funny. Thousand Island dressing. I remember that. Oh, my God. That's as kids, our meals at Sizzler were the fanciest we ever had. We would go after church wearing our Sunday finest, My sister and I in dresses and patent leather shoes, my dad in his press suit. My brother wore his clip-on tie. We would order steaks and fill plate after plate from the salad bar, always heaped high, always knowing we could get up and eat more. More baby corn, more crinkled strips of canned beets, more croutons, more cubes of jello, even when we were full. We wanted to fill our bellies with America, to swallow every last bite it had to offer. My sister would complain as we walked out, saying, so full, as we made our way out through the swinging glass doors. We knew we would come back for more. It was always a special treat to go to Sizzler. We celebrated special occasions there because it was familiar, affordable, American. But were we living the American dream? I'm not sure. We could have all the steak we could fit into our bellies, all the Thousand Island dressing we could want, So much banana and plenty of little cubes of American cheese. If that isn't living some kind of dream, I don't know what is. Special thanks to Cecilia Hagen Lee for bringing us this story. Cecilia is a food and travel writer, photographer, conceptual artist, and a producer. If you'd like to see photos from this story, we put them up on our website for you. 
That's www.americastestkitchen.com slash proof. Check it out. This story was adapted from a piece originally published on Eater's website as a part of their Life in Chain series. To read more, go to eater.com. If you like Proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our managing producer, associate producer, Caroline Rickert. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Jack Bishop is Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Color, Oxo, Ocean Spray, and NakedWines.com. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.